Good morning, everyone. It is a real privilege and a real grace that we can gather in a public building freely together to worship our God, to fellowship with one another. Uh, may we never take that for granted. Right now in the world, there are several of our brothers and sisters who don't have that opportunity and have to meet in secret in the fear of reprisal. Uh, so I just hope we never take that for granted. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together and then we will uh, dig back into the word. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for uh, this place that we can gather together weekly uh, to sing your praises, to open your word. Uh, this morning, Lord, I pray that you would direct us in the path of your commands, as Psalm 119 says, for there is delight in your commands and in your statutes. Uh, Father, turn our hearts toward your statutes. Give us fresh longing for your word, I pray. And as we open now this portion of Exodus, we pray for attention and alertness to the things that you would teach us, Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray that uh, though concerns and worries from the past week are very real, that you would give us in this hour an ability to concentrate and to pay attention to what it is you are saying. We pray these things in the mighty and the powerful name of our Lord and Master and Savior and Friend, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. A man who had worked as a deep water diver in the U.S. Navy described his experience diving so deep into the ocean that the darkness became disorienting. Down deep in a dark ocean, it can become very difficult to tell which way is up. But the diver knew what to do. He felt for bubbles. He said, bubbles always drift to the surface. That's how you can tell the path up to daylight in a dark and disorienting ocean. Well, friends, when God revealed his personal name to humanity, it was as if life-saving bubbles emerged in our darkness. Without God revealing his name to humanity, and when he re revealed his name to humanity, it also revealed something of his nature, without that happening, humanity would have remained in the dark would have remained in a disoriented place, fumbling around, trying to discern which way was up. And all the while, we would be doing something that we have proven as human beings, we've proven to be very good at, namely, dreaming up names for all manner of false gods, manufactured gods, which are really no more than the projections of our own desires and projections of ourselves. Well, in the third chapter of Exodus, God began in grace to reveal his name and the significance of his name. Now, we've seen already in the first two chapters of Exodus, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, we've seen how God has largely been at work in those first two chapters in the background of things. Well, beginning at chapter 3 of Exodus, now God arrives in prominence and he takes his place now as the central figure in the narrative. 
And the primary reason that God takes center stage now is given, if you have your Bible open, it's given in Exodus 3.7 and Exodus 3.9. God had seen the affliction of his people. God had heard the cry of his kids. God knew their suffering. Now it was time for God to act. Now, Exodus 3 gives us the famous story of God appearing to Moses at the burning bush. At this point in his life, we need to understand, Moses was all grown up now. He was over in Midian, having fled the house of Pharaoh earlier in his life. Moses had murdered an Egyptian, and Pharaoh had wanted to kill Moses, and so Moses had run away as a fugitive. At this point in the story, when God appears to Moses in the wilderness at the burning bush, Moses is already an aged man, no longer a prince in Egypt. Now he's working in the lowly position of shepherd for his father-in-law. We might think that Moses is not the most likely candidate for the lofty work of delivering one nation from another nation. Let's watch what happens. I want us to notice what God says to Moses in Exodus 3.8. And as best we can, let's put ourselves in Moses' 80-year-old shoes. In Exodus 3.8, God says, listen to what God says, I have come down to deliver the Hebrew people out of the hand of the Egyptians. So Exodus 3.8 is about God delivering his people. If I were Moses listening to God say this, I would probably start something of a cheerleading routine. Yes, Lord. Do it, Lord. Deliver the people. Fulfill Genesis 15:14 at last. Bring your people out of Egypt. And for my part, Lord, I'll do everything I can to cheer you on and applaud you in your work. <laughs> Unfortunately for Moses, God doesn't stop speaking there at Exodus 3:8. At Exodus 3:10, God says to Moses, "Come." I will send you, elderly Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So if Moses had hoped, after, Gen after Exodus 3.8, that he could just assume the role of cheerleader on the sidelines while God was out there running all the plays on the field, now Moses heard God say, in essence, suit up, Moses. I'm sending you out onto the field. I love what commentator Walter Brueggemann says here. He says this, quote, In one brief utterance, Exodus 3.10, the grand intention of God has become a specific human responsibility, human obligation, and human vocation. It is Moses who will do what Yahweh said, and Moses who will run the risks that Yahweh seemed ready to take. 
verse 11. Moses says to God, Yes! Absolutely, Lord! I affirm your plan. That's probably not what you see there in the text, is it? Rather, what verse 11 reports is a Moses who seems genuinely stunned and staggered at the call of God. Now watch this. Who am I, says Moses, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? That is, in Moses' mind, listen, in Moses' mind, there is a gaping chasm between his assessment of his elderly, lowly, fugitive self, on one hand, and the massiveness and the grandeur of the proposed mission, on the other hand. Who am I? Now, we see this who am I pattern later in the Bible also with people like Gideon and Jeremiah. They also ask, who am I when God comes calling? Moses here is legitimately puzzled, isn't he, over God's choice for the Exodus mission. Moses felt inadequate. Moses also felt fearful. Fearful because, after all, he had murdered an Egyptian, think of it, and now God was asking Moses to go back to the Pharaoh of Egypt. As if. And besides, according to Genesis 46-34, shepherds like Moses were an abomination to Egyptians. How in the world was a lowly shepherd like Moses supposed to gain an audience with the highest official in the Egyptian court? Who am I? Lord, have you given any thought to socioeconomic realities and hierarchies? doesn't seem that you have. Now, friends, there is a real lesson here in all of this for you and I. And the lesson is this, and I want you to listen carefully. We can focus until the cows come home on our own personal inadequacies and deficiencies and limitations when God comes calling. We can play the who am I tape over and over again in our minds and resist the call of God. Or we can reframe the question so it's not who am I, but whose am I? In other words, we can put the focus on God. Are you with me? On what God can do in and through us and in spite of us. We can focus on the power of God, on the resources of God, on the ability of God. When God comes calling, He comes with His ability and His guarantee of the success of the call. The fact is, and and we need to hear this well, the fact is that every one of us is always inadequate on our own to fulfill the call of God, but God is able. Amen? 
Now, it's very instructive, I think, to see here how God replies to Moses, who am I, in verse 12. What does God do here? The question is, does God reply to the who am I of Moses by saying something like, Oh no, Moses, don't say, who am I? You are so talented. You are so skilled. You are great. You have everything that would fit you for this particular mission. God doesn't do that. (laughs) Notice this. God doesn't spend any time trying to bolster Moses' self-esteem here. Instead, what God does is he cuts to the chase. We need to see this. God responds to Moses, who am I, by saying, I will be with you. You see that? In other words, what will be the distinguishing characteristic of Moses' mission? What will be the thing that is most important and crucial for the mission of Moses? It's God's presence. His I will be with you. Nothing could be more important for Moses, as Moses considered here the magnitude of this proposed mission. Nothing could be more important than God's personal, abiding, real presence. When the mission got dangerous, I will be with you. When the mission seemed like it was sure to fail, I will be with you. When Moses wanted to give up, I will be with you. Now, I think this is worth our very close consideration, friends. How does God respond to us when we plead gross inadequacy for our calling? He responds by saying, my presence with you will be more than enough. Listen to the wise words of commentator J.A. Motyer. Matyer says, I love this, The Lord does not call us because of our adequacy, nor is His presence conditional upon us becoming adequate. It is rather promised to those who are inadequate. Amen? I really, really like that. The Lord does not call us because of our adequacy, nor is his presence conditional upon us becoming adequate. It is rather promised to those who are inadequate. Now that is good news for a chump like me. It really is. Well, just before we leave this phrase, I will be with you in Exodus 3.12, and I want you to, to, uh, to track with me here. We need to take note of something very important We're going to come back to this. Something very important that's happening in the original Hebrew here. And that is that the English phrase, I will be, here in Exodus 3.12, translates from a single Hebrew word, the word, Ehyeh. Ehyeh, I will be. And that Ehyeh is found three times, two verses later. In Exodus 3.14, where normally it translates, I am. So, Ehyeh in Exodus 3.12, I will be. And Ehyeh in Exodus 3.14, I am. The Ehyeh of Exodus 3.12 seems to serve as an important 
pointer toward the use of the same verbal form in Exodus 3.14. And very importantly, the use of the word in Exodus 3.12 has to do with God's presence. Now hang on to that thought. Put it in your back pocket for now. We're going to come back to it once we get to verse 14. But let's finish up verse 12. God says, I will be with you to Moses. And then notice what God says. He says, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Notice that. This shall be the sign for you. The question is, what does the word this refer to in this place? Does it refer to the burning bush itself? Some think so. Or does the word this refer specifically to what God says as the verse unfolds? This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. And then God gives the content of the sign. This shall be the sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I think the sign here that will confirm Moses' mission is in fact the moment yet future to Moses when the Hebrew people would arrive at Mount Sinai to serve, or as it's also translated legitimately, to worship God at the mountain. In other words, the sign that God promises to Moses here in Exodus 3.12 will not be fulfilled until Exodus 19.2 when the people freed from Egypt are finally gathered at Mount Sinai for worship. When that day comes, when Moses and the people are gathered there at Sinai, freed at last from the clutches of Egypt, it will be the confirming sign of Moses' mission. So this promise of a sign, notice at Exodus 3.12, is really a call for faith in Moses. The day at Sinai would certainly come. In the meantime, very importantly, Moses had the promise of God's presence. Moses must exercise faith in the hard times, and they will come, He must exercise faith that God's promise of gathering the people to worship at Sinai would come to pass. This is like a guiding vision that God gives to Moses here. And friends, do note very well, look at the verse with me, note very well that worship, service, is the ultimate aim, the ultimate aim of the exodus from Egypt. Notice this. In other words, bringing the people out of Egypt is not an end unto itself. We need to see this. Very important. The goal of bringing the people out of Egypt was worship at the mountain. God was after a personal, vibrant, living relationship with His people. That was His goal. As John McKay has put it, bringing the people out of Egypt was only the prelude to bringing them into a living, personal relationship with the Lord Himself. 
All right. So by this point, Moses has been assured of God's presence. And Moses has also been promised this great guiding vision, this great future sign that will serve as God's confirmation of his mission. You might think that now Moses would simply pledge his enthusiastic, unwavering commitment to God. Right? Let's go to verse 13. I love Moses. Moses is still hesitant. He's still reticent to go whole hog and be all in with God. Moses says to God, Okay, Lord, uh, thanks for your assurance of presence, and thanks also for the promise of a future sign. But now, Lord, let's talk about a hypothetical situation. If, notice hypothetical, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, now, now just hold on a moment here, hold on a moment, Moses. Back in verse 10, God told you, Moses, that you were being sent to Pharaoh. To Pharaoh. But now suddenly in verse 13, you're concerned, Moses, about a meeting with the people of Israel. A meeting that God has said nothing about. So what's going on here? Why is Moses talking about a meeting with the people of Israel? Why is he worried about meeting them and not meeting with Pharaoh? I think that probably what we are to understand here is that Moses knows that he can't go directly to Pharaoh without first receiving a mandate from the Hebrew nation. Before Moses can confront Pharaoh, he must first visit the Hebrew people in order to win their support. And so he talks about this hypothetical meeting with the people of Israel. Now this gets very interesting. Suppose I go to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then the people ask me, What is his name? What then, Lord? What do I say to them? Now Moses' self-confidence in the area of leadership was probably very low at this point. He probably remembered that time in Exodus 2.14 where a Hebrew man had rebuffed him concerning his ability to lead. Moses is elderly. He's been rebuffed before, as leaders tend to be rebuffed. And so he wants to proceed cautiously here. If they question me, Lord, what what do I say in reply? Now, now, what we need to do here, friends, is to linger just for a moment or two over the specific question. Notice the specific question that Moses thinks the Hebrews are going to ask. Moses thinks that when he goes to the Hebrew people, they will say, oh, this God of, your, of our ancestors that, that you mentioned, Moses, what's his name? Why does Moses think they'll ask that particular question? What's this God's name? Now, I think there are a couple of things to consider here. First of all, although in the book of Genesis we do have people like Noah, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Laban, all calling on the name Yahweh, God of Israel, at various points, 
What's interesting is that by the time Jacob's children arrive on the scene, it appears, at least looking from the narrative of Genesis, that the name Yahweh began to fall out of use. In the book of Genesis, we don't get the name Yahweh being uttered by any of Jacob's sons. Jacob himself is really the last character in Genesis to use the name Yahweh. And the beginning of Exodus told us that all of Jacob's generation died. In fact, by the time of Moses' encounter with God here at the burning bush, we are already hundreds of years removed from Jacob. And according to Judges 2, it only takes one generation for people to forget about the Lord. So could it be that the Hebrew people, by this time of Exodus 3, were now genuinely ignorant of the name Yahweh, and thus they would ask Moses, what's this God's name? This God of our ancestors that you speak of. It could very well be that there were simply, they were simply oblivious to the name of God at this point in their history. That's very possible. Secondly, we have verses like, if you want to look them up, you can. I don't have them on screen. We have verses like Joshua 24:14 and Ezekiel 20, verse 7, both of which are later Old Testament texts that look back on Israel's time in Egypt during the Exodus, Joshua 24:14 and Ezekiel 20, verse 7, both those verses tell us, listen, they tell us that while the Hebrew people lived in Egypt, they served and worshipped many gods and idols. Each god in the ancient Near Eastern context needed a specific name so that a person could keep track of which god was which. Is this a god of births or a god of rain or which god is this? Could it be that when Moses anticipates the people asking, what's this god's name in Exodus 3.13, what he's anticipating is the desire that the people will have to simply categorize another god into an already existing catalog of gods. That could be the case here also. But now there's even more going on here with this question, what's his name? And I want you to track with me here because we're going to do a little more Hebrew here. It's, it's important for the interpretation of the verse. In biblical Hebrew... Track with me. There are a couple of different interrogative pronouns. A couple of different question pronouns that appear in various places of the Hebrew Bible. The first one is me. Am I? And me gets used in context where somebody simply wants a name. When somebody simply wants the identity marker of the person that they are talking to. What's your name? And I reply, Brent. That's all the person was looking for. The label, the identity marker that attaches to my person. But then the other kind of interrogative pronoun in Hebrew is the word ma. Ma is used in contexts where it's not just a label that's being sought, 
but rather where the actual meaning of the name is being sought. In these cases, what's your name would be a question that was seeking not only the name Brent, but also the meaning of the name. In that case, I would say Brent, and my name means, of all things, a steep hill. I don't know why my parents chose it. (laughs) Seeking the meaning of the name. Or seeking the significance, the very nature of the person himself. In Exodus 3.13, it's ma that is used here. In other words, the way the question appears in Hebrew, it's not simply the identity marker itself that's being asked about. It's also the nature of the one who bears the name that's being asked about. In this ancient Near Eastern context, in fact, there was a close association between a name and the character of the one who bore the name. Nahum Sarna, who wrote a classic commentary on Exodus, says this, The name is intended to connote character and nature. The totality of the intricate, sorry, interwoven, manifold forces that make up the whole personality of the bearer of the name. The upshot is this. In Exodus 3.13, what's his name is a question that's seeking not only the name, but the precise significance and meaning of the name. This question is an inquiry about the nature of the one who bears the name. The question that Moses thinks the Hebrews will ask is not only a question that wants an identity marker, the question is asking about the very character, nature, and reputation of this God. Well, watch how God answers in Exodus 3:14 and 15. God responds with words that reveal his very self. God says in Exodus 3.14, Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh. I am who I am. Now again, remember Exodus 3.12, we said there that Ehyeh was the I will be of that phrase, I will be with you. We said in Exodus 3.12 that Echyah was all about God's presence with Moses. I will be with you. Here at Exodus 3.14, we have two Echyahs right off the top in God's speech. Echyah, I am. Asher, who? Echyah, I am. Probably then, because of literary context... We are to take these first two Ehyes, or I Ams, of Exodus 3.14 as indicators of presence. Like it had been in Exodus 3.12. In other words, this mysterious phrase, I am who I am, at the very nub of what it is, is a declaration and assertion of presence. Whatever else this phrase may imply, certainly it is a statement about God's presence. God is a God who will be present. Tell them that, Moses. 
Victor Hamilton, in his great commentary on Exodus, says this, God will always be there for his people. Did you know that? In a distant Egypt too. Even if that divine presence is questioned and imperceptible, he will always be whatever his people need him to be in any given moment, in any given place. That's our God. Hamilton says, if they need a deliverer, that's Yahweh. If they need grace and mercy and forgiveness, that's Yahweh. If they need purifying and empowerment, that's Yahweh. If they need rebuke and chastisement, that's Yahweh. If they need guidance, that's Yahweh. Moses, tell them I'm the God who's ever present when they ask what my name is. Say, I am who I am. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but speaking personally, in moments of fear, have you had any moments of fear? In moments of distress, in moments of worry, Nothing could be better than to have the assurance of the presence of Almighty God. For the cancer patient who's undergoing radiation or chemotherapy. For the person who's just lost a loved one. For the elderly person experiencing loneliness. The blessed assurance of God's presence brings tremendous comfort. Amen. Whatever else we want to say about Eyeh, Asher, Eyeh, I am who I am, it is a massive, glorious, powerful assurance and assertion of the abiding presence of God. And then as verse 14 closes, we get now what I would argue is more like an actual name. God says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Ehyeh, I am, has sent me to you. (laughs) Now friends, only God, listen, only God has the prerogative to name himself. And this last portion of Exodus 3.14 is where the self-naming happens. In the ancient world, to name someone, to name something, meant that you, as the one giving the name, were in a superior position to the one being named. Since no one can be superior to God, God must name himself, and he does so at the end of Exodus 3.14. I am. God is the present one. He is the one with being in himself. He is not contingent on anyone or anything. God is the one who is forever on the move with with his people and for his people. And then Exodus 3.15, our final verse this morning. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, mark it, the Lord, 
The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Oh, I can't do this without. This is my name forever, ever, ever. And thus I am to be remembered, remember, remember. It's just so majestic. Throughout all generations. This is the name that you are to invoke for perpetuity. Now those words, the Lord, in our English Bibles, look, look at those words in your English Bible, the Lord, in all caps, translates from the Hebrew YHWH, Yahweh. And YHWH, we think, still debated, we think is from the same verbal root as Ehyeh, the verb to be. In other words, YHWH is closely related to I am. I am is first person. Yahweh is third person. (laughs) I am, he is, is what Yahweh could translate as. God commands Moses to say to the Hebrews, He is, or Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Notice here, folks, in verse 15, the intimacy, right? The personal relationship that this God has with people. This God is a God of specific named individuals. Abraham had a life, had a certain personality. Isaac and Jacob. So that this God is no distant, impersonal God. This God, as Dwayne Garrett has put it, has involved himself in a human family and story and makes himself known through their names. Isn't that beautiful? And Moses and the people of Israel could reflect back on the lives of these named individuals, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They could see how God attached himself to their names, had been faithful to them and present in their stories, God had proven himself to be faithfully present in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this implied, of course, a promise of continuing faithfulness and presence to Moses and the people. And God says, as the verse closes, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Well, this text that we've just walked through is no doubt a pivotal text, a key text in the Bible, whenever we want to discuss the name of God. But in the end, it is certainly not the final word on the subject of the name of God. In fact, it's really only the prequel to a much more glorious, massive, wonderful, escalated sequel. Let's do a little biblical theology here as we close to see the glory. Are you ready for the glory to ramp up as we look at the Word of God? It's in the latter half of the book of Isaiah where we get a real sort of expansion on the meaning of the name that is first revealed in Exodus 3, that name YHWH or Yahweh. Everywhere in Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 55, we get phrases like these. I am Yahweh. I am He. I am God. And those phrases in Isaiah are surrounded by descriptions of the character and roles and nature of Yahweh. 
So in Isaiah 41.4, we have, I, Yahweh, am first and last. Describes who he is. Or Isaiah 41, verses 13 and 14, I am he, the Redeemer and Holy One. Or Isaiah 43.25, I am he who blots out transgressions and remembers sin no more. That's who he is. Or I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 45.22 and 46.9. Or I am Yahweh, the Savior and Redeemer and Mighty One. Isaiah 49.26. Or I am he who comforts you. Isaiah 51.12, etc., etc. Now here's the thing. In many, listen to this, in many of those Isaiah texts, as they appear in the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used by the apostles as they wrote the New Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used by the apostles as they wrote the New Testament. In the Septuagint... In places like Isaiah 41.4 and 43.10 and 45.8, etc., what we have, and I'm going somewhere with this, what we have in the Greek is ego a me. I am. When Yahweh is speaking, saying, I am Yahweh, or I am he. That phrase, ego a me, I am comes from Yahweh himself about 11 or 12 places in later Isaiah as he is describing himself and his nature. Ego a me. Now watch this because it's really filled with glory. Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, makes several statements that indicate to us his intimate, close, almost organic relationship with the Father, with Yahweh of Israel. Father and Son are two distinct persons in the Trinity, yet Jesus also wants us to understand the organic, profound unity that he shares with the Father. And so he says things like, I and the Father are one. John 10.30, or John 10.38. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Or John 14.7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Or John 14.9. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. The point is, in Jesus, what we have is nothing less than the will, the purposes, the mind, and the characteristics of the Father, Yahweh. As the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ. God was in Christ. We might put it like this. All that the name Yahweh meant for people living in Old Testament times was now fleshed out, quite literally, in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And so no wonder Jesus can say, Ego e me. I am. Identifying himself with the Yahweh of Isaiah and the Yahweh of Exodus 3 before Isaiah. In John 6 that we read earlier today, Jesus walks on water, something only God can do, according to Job 9.8. And Jesus says to his frightened disciples as he's treading the water there, Ego e me, I am. Usually translated in, in our English Bibles as, it is I. But they miss what's going on there. I am, do not be afraid. John 6.20 In John 8.24, as Jesus speaks to a group of Jews, he declares, unless you believe that ego a me, that I am, you will die in your sins. Again, only God can make such a statement, right? Jesus uses the language of Isaiah and the language of Exodus 3.14. What's he doing? He's claiming deity for himself. Jesus is none other than Yahweh in the flesh. In John 8.58, Jesus goes ahead and makes an absolute claim there to deity, to Godhood. Again, speaking to some Jews, Jesus says... Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego a me. I am. And then what happens in John 8, 59? These people pick up stones to try and stone Jesus. Why? Clearly, they understood that Jesus claiming to be I am was akin to blasphemy. He was claiming to be God. You stone people like that. In John 18, verses 4 through 6, when those who had come to arrest Jesus heard him say, Ego a me, I am he, what happened? They drew back and fell to the ground. (laughs) Clearly staggered at what they had just heard Jesus claim. Ego a me, was what Yahweh had said in Exodus 3.14 and all those places in Isaiah. Now it's coming out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus is asserting that he was Yahweh to the rescue. Yahweh in the flesh. Now the truly amazing thing, friends, and then we're done, is that the name Yahweh, listen, does not appear once in our New Testament. Not once. Why? To see the reason, we need to go back just for a moment to Isaiah 45, verses 14 through 25. Now in these 12 verses, the name Yahweh appears eight times. It's Old Testament, eight times. It's a Yahweh-centric passage. And at the end of verse 23, we have the following. Yahweh says, this is Yahweh speaking. He says, to me, that is to Yahweh, To Yahweh, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. To Yahweh. In the context of Isaiah 45, it's Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. You know where I'm going with this. Over in the New Testament, 
In Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul quotes that verse from from Isaiah 45. But what does he do with it? Get ready for the glory. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul says, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and, listen, listen, bestowed on Him. The Father has bestowed on the Son, on Jesus, the name. See that? The name that is above every name, so that at the name, not of Yahweh any longer, but at the name of Jesus, Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's happened? What's happened is this. Because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was perfect in His obedience, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, carried out a complete fulfillment of God's will in His life, death, and resurrection, Yahweh the Father has handed over His divine, most honored name to Jesus the Son. As the Son surrendered Himself to the will of the Father, and thus brought the highest honor to the Father. Now the Father honors the Son by surrendering His name to the Son. That's why we don't get Yahweh in the New Testament, but Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And this handing over of the divine name, to use Chris Seitz's terminology, has happened, notice according to Philippians 2, it's happened to the glory of the Father. The handing over of the name exalts the Son and brings honor to the Father. Friends, it's the name Jesus that is to be held in high honor. Acts 19.17 It's the name Jesus that is to be glorified. 2 Thessalonians 1.12 It's the name Jesus that we call upon. 1 Corinthians 1.2 The church assembles in the name of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5.4 We believe in His name. John 1.12 and 2.23 We offer thanksgiving in His name. Ephesians 5.20 We ask in the name of Jesus. John 14.13 and 15.16 And the church is commanded in the name of Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 We are blessed to be insulted in the name of Jesus, 1 Peter 4.14. Repentance and forgiveness of sins are proclaimed in His name, Luke 24.47. And salvation is found in no other name, Acts 4.12. And as Echia, I am, was an assertion of God's presence, so is the name Jesus, who promised, did He not, to be with us forever. Matthew 28.18 and Hebrews 13.5. In Exodus 3, Moses stood at the burning bush and heard God pronounce God's name. The one named Yahweh was the only one reputable enough and capable enough to work the deliverance that Israel required. Today, the world stands before the revelation of the New Testament and hears proclaimed, the name 
Jesus. The one named Jesus is the rescue for humanity sent from Yahweh's heart. The one named Jesus is the only one able to free people from their bondage to sin, death, and the devil. And this liberation has been secured by the cross and resurrection. May the wonderful name of Jesus be forever exalted and praised. May the fame of the Son of God advance through all generations. We'll take silent time now in meditation on the word before we go to the table. Father, we pray your help this week as we go out into the world again to be confessors and proclaimers of the name Jesus. To proclaim all that the name has meant in our lives, his character, his reputation, his goodness and faithfulness, love and grace. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be confessors who would honor you with our lips, with our hearts, with the meditation of our hearts. We pray your presence, your witness with us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.